The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour with me, David Kermode, here on Food FM, and it's episode four. In today's programme, natural wine, a revolution in winemaking or modish madness. The term isn't really defined, but we'll do our best to describe it with Freddie Bulmer, a buyer at the Wine Society. Our desert island drink involves not just a grape variety, but an entire region. Giles Burke Gaffney from Justerinian Brooks will tell us why Burgundy would provide his island supply. And Turkey, where east meets west, continents converge, cultures collide. But what about the wines? We'll go on a voyage of discovery with Turkey's first and only master sommelier, Issa Bal. Plus, your recommendations for medal-winning wines and spirits. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Fashionable, ill-defined and sometimes even controversial, natural wine has punched above its weight, in terms of attention at least, So what is it? And why do we even need the term? Surely wine is natural anyway, you might say. Well, only up to a point, otherwise you'd probably have vinegar. Natural is a buzzword when it comes to wine, but it's certainly not, on its own at least, an indicator of quality. Confused? Well, you won't be after we've spoken to Freddie Bulmer, who's a buyer for the Wine Society and uh, a regular on the drinking hour, and he joins us now. Hello, Freddie. Hello, David. How are you doing? Thanks for having me. I'm very well, thank you. Even better for you being there. So, <laughs> uh, what do you understand by the descriptor natural wine? Well, that's the thing. I guess that actually it's a descriptor which uh, isn't legally defined, so therefore it's slightly open to interpretation. But uh, for me personally, it generally refers to uh, minimal intervention in the winemaking process. So I guess the idea really is that nothing that shouldn't have been added has been. And... Uh, and also the same sort of applies in the vineyard really as well. So it's a loosely defined term, but uh, minimal intervention is, is really what springs to mind. And so what sort of things would not be in the wine if it's natural then? So I guess, you know, it really goes to, um, uh, first of all, the, the vineyard. So you've got to think about what you're spraying in the vineyard. So a natural wine, generally speaking, isn't going to have, uh, you know, too many, well, if any, pesticides, herbicides, that sort of thing. So really, it's about taking a sort of holistic approach in the vineyard. But then also in the winery as well, uh, the, the hot topic, I guess, is, is sulfur. Um, uh, and so natural wines, Again, you know, it's hard to, to really generalise, but natural wines generally uh, won't have any added sulphur um, and won't have any uh, anything else added in the winemaking process, ideally. So we're talking natural yeasts as well, rather than, uh, you know, yeasts that come from a lab, uh, which are cultivated. Um, and so really the idea is just about actually letting the, the fruit do all the work um, and, and therefore the resulting wine essentially just being fermented grape juice uh, and nothing else in there at all. Well, that's the, that's the dream anyway. Why do you think natural has become a buzzword with wine? Do you know, that's a really good question, actually. Um, I think that it's something which uh, is, well, I guess to an extent easily understandable or at least allows a consumer to 
feel like they understand what that then means for the wine. Um, and it's quite ironic that it should be a, a, you know, an easily understandable term, considering that actually it's, there's, there's no definition for it. There's nothing sort of legal uh, that you have to do to be natural. Um, but I think it's something which consumers have managed to latch onto because it gives a bit of an idea about the ethos, perhaps, of the winemaking process. And it's done potentially a little bit of damage uh, to people's perceptions or certainly natural wine lovers' perceptions of other wines which don't call themselves natural. It's become a buzzword because I think it, it does paint a bit of a picture, at least. And, uh, you know, without going on about it too much, I think wine could do a lot more in terms of actually helping a consumer and providing cues for consumers to, to kind of latch onto or understand. Um, and, and natural is an example of, of that, where actually there's something that people go, ah, OK, I know what that means. That's a good thing, right? You know, it means that they haven't messed around with the wine and therefore I want to drink that. So it's um it's quite a, a helpful a helpful cue but it's a shame that it's it's not actually defined you know it's there's, there's a lot of flex with what it means yeah it's a really good point about uh, something that's actually intended to be uh, helpful and and positive uh, being so opaque actually but, but as you say natural is not defined organic and biodynamic are defined so just for those who are unsure what those two terms actually mean taking each individually um, how how can you give us a uh, a definition of organic and biodynamic so organic first of all i guess you could think of as, as step one here um, so organic wine has to be made from organic grapes and to make organic grapes you can't be uh, as i mentioned before using certain pesticides herbicides and that sort of thing uh, in the vineyard but you can interestingly still use copper uh, to spray in the vineyard and so that's a controversial point in itself because as much as you might not be uh, allowed to use uh, pesticides you can still drive up and down your vineyard repeatedly in your tractor spraying copper on the vines which actually may be just as bad for the environment if not worse uh, depending on how many passes in the tractor you do and then in the in the winery it actually differs uh, between the EU and the US, but uh, a lot of it is to do with things like how much uh, sulfur you can you can add as well. So organic is is the most common of, of these terms, um, but is also one which does still allow a little bit of uh, of uh, winemaking trickery, I suppose. You can still be certifi certified organic and not actually uh, be making the wines that the consumer might expect you to be making or in the way that they might expect biodynamic goes a step further so it's a, it introduces a holistic approach so you as a biodynamic winemaker wouldn't use again pesticides herbicides anything untoward in the vineyard like that um you would be unlikely to use copper you know you're, you're really trying to keep things um as fresh clean natural i suppose as possible without actually being natural <laughs> um but also uh biodynamic introduces this this as i say sort of holistic almost magical element um whereby people use various preparations made from uh you know just not going into it too much but various uh, poo of different animals and that sort of thing you know That's burying yes. burying manure in in cow horns and and that sort of thing to make preparations and and spraying spraying things on the vine but spraying things which are actually from nature you know um so uh it also involves doing things in certain cycles and 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 by um the biodynamic calendar as well so 
what you might find with biodynamic winemaking is that a lot of it might seem a bit bonkers, but actually the key thing I personally think is that these are some of the winemakers who are paying the closest attention to what they're doing. And actually that for me is probably what yields the great results is actually their attention to detail. But natural, natural is a whole nother ball game, I suppose, much more loosely defined than, than either of those two, but really should be uh, a much uh, stricter regime than, than either organic or biodynamic. So you certainly wouldn't be uh, spraying anything in the vineyards if you're a genuinely natural winemaker. And then when it comes to making the wine, uh, the idea would be that no sulfur is added at all. Nothing is is added. In fact, the wines will ferment with natural yeasts only. Um, and uh, the idea really, as I touched on earlier, is about just getting pure you know, grape juice fermented and that's your wine and put that in bottle but of course some winemakers do add a little bit of sulfur uh you know i think it's actually personally i think quite sensible to add a little bit of sulfur at bottling because otherwise the wines go bad and, and one of the downsides of natural winemaking is that actually you have to be technically very very able and accomplished as a winemaker in order to avoid faults developing in bottle because part of the process actually um is is Part of, part of the process, uh, I, I guess, opens you up to own faults because you're not adding anything in there like sulfur, which is going to prevent them. So that's why natural wines can be very hit and miss. Mm. Um, sometimes uh, they can be, um, you know, funky. Um, sometimes they can be amazing with, you know, wonderful bright fruit. Um, sometimes they can be downright awful and, you know, you try and send it back and, and someone says, well, it's supposed to be like that. You know, um, it's uh, it's it's uh, this is the problem with uh, the fact that it's not a descriptor of quality, is it? No, exactly. Yeah, that, that's the thing. So natural is much more a descriptor of the philosophy of the winemaker um, than it is of the quality of the wine. So you can uh, also, I guess, expect well, you should really expect differing levels of quality in, in a natural wine. Uh, it's a very, very hard way to, very difficult way, I should say, to make wine. So uh, if uh, somebody starts out and they want to make natural wine, but they don't have much winemaking experience, unfortunately, a lot of those wines are really not going to be up to scratch. Uh, the best natural winemakers I know are people who've made wine in the conventional way for many, many years and have learned bit by bit what they can strip back in order to to make what is a, still a healthy, clean uh, wine, you know, fingers crossed, full of life, but which actually isn't uh, isn't faulty. Um, so that's that's the the challenge. You know, as you say, it's um, it's not a quality designation by any means, and it shouldn't, I think, be treated as such. I think it's it's a, a fair word to use when it comes to describing a philosophy, but also we have to remember that it is a buzzword, and actually, it doesn't mean that other wines aren't natural or are any less natural. Really interesting that you say that some of the most successful natural winemakers uh, you've encountered have um, previously made wine in the more conventional way. So what do you think uh, in, in, in sort of Freddie's ideal world <laughs> makes a wine natural? Good question. So I would say that it really is about that minimal intervention approach um, that I talked about earlier. For me personally, I think that actually it's okay to add a little bit of sulfur. I never, I don't think anyone should ever be adding more sulfur than is needed. And I don't think anybody should be adding anything to their wine that, that you know, isn't absolutely needed. Um, but I personally would think of a, a, a natural wine as being, or a good natural wine, I should say, 
as being one which hasn't been just too interfered with. You know, the, the grapes have to be healthy. That's absolutely vital because you cannot make a good wine, natural or not, from unhealthy grapes. Um, but then in the winery, I guess it's just about giving the wine time. You're not forcing anything along. You're not trying to make wine to a schedule as such. You know, a good natural winemaker would allow things to happen naturally, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, no added yeast uh, where possible, obviously. Um, and and I think also uh, fining and filtering is 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 quite um, an interesting element. So I personally would say that actually a natural wine probably shouldn't be fined or, or filtered. So you do end up sometimes with slightly cloudy wines, but actually the idea is that then you maintain flavour. And that's the most important thing. So what wines would you rate highly that would be able to describe themselves as natural whether they would choose to describe themselves as natural <laughs> or not is, is another matter because i know some uh, producers actually choose not to describe their wines as natural when in fact uh, they they would be recognized as such under that very loose definition so you, you deal in some of these wines which ones would you recommend do you know i think actually uh, that's a really really good point natural is only a, a you know a, a welcome term for certain people who kind of sign up to that uh, that buzzword I guess or this new movement. Um, interestingly, there's been people who've been making wine that we could class as natural for decades, you know, a long, long time. And actually, some of the great wines of the world, if we look at Burgundy or Rhone, for example, um, uh, could easily call themselves natural wines, but but wouldn't want to you know it's actually not a particularly desirable term for those sorts of producers but the important thing is they're making wine in a very responsible way and as i touched on before aren't adding anything that they don't need to um i work with a i mean with with austria for example there's a fantastic winemaker called gerard pitnauer who's in the bergenland region of austria and actually in in bergenland um there's a real kind of natural minimal intervention biodynamic sort of culture movement there uh, and Gerard, I think, is fantastic because actually he was technically a very, very good winemaker, but decided he actually wanted to strip things back and didn't want to be putting stuff in his wines anymore that, that he doesn't need to. And um, he's just bit by bit kind of removed things and, and has, has maintained um, hygiene. Obviously, that's very, very important in a winery because you don't want any sort of bacteria uh, that shouldn't be in your wine there because that can that can cause all sorts of issues but he's made now some of what i think are the best natural wines certainly in in, in austria um there's uh, over the border in in hungary there's a winemaker called peter vetzer who same sort of thing you know again same sort of story started out as a, as a very technical modern winemaker and has very much stripped back um but but you know there's these people all over the world there's even uh, you know as an example of a winemaker that wouldn't call himself uh, natural uh, but is becoming a real kind of rock star of the wine world is Apostolos Thymiopoulos uh, Reese. Um, he's not mucking, he's around with, mucking with anything. He's not spraying anything. He doesn't need to be spraying. He's not adding any more sulfur than he needs to add. But he doesn't call himself an, a natural winemaker. And I think that's a story for, what, frankly, um, the, the ones, a lot of the time, the ones that I think are the best natural winemakers are the ones that say, no, I'm not a natural winemaker. I just make my wine in a very responsible way. And I think that's actually the approach. Because if you're chasing the, if you're chasing the trend, I, I, you probably aren't doing the right thing. And talking of trends, uh, Cameron Diaz launched uh, a clean wine last year and raised um, a few eyebrows, it's, it's fair to say. Um, what do you understand, if you understand anything at all, by the term <laughs> clean <laughs> clean wine? Oh, God. <laughs> um, yeah, so this did raise a few eyebrows, mine included. Um, clean wine, I thought, 
frankly, was an absolute load of nonsense, um, to be honest with you. Um, and also, I don't know if, if, if you saw the video that Cameron Diaz did where she launched her clean wine, but she ended it after having talked for so long about how, you know, all other wines have all sorts of things added in. And we were so shocked by that. And then she says about how she likes to drink it. Was it with lemonade or with soda or with <laughs> with uh, with lime and ice and stuff in there in the glass? And I thought, well, that's I mean, come on. That, that does it get more ridiculous than that? Clean wine, I, I personally don't entertain um, because, again, I think that comes from a place of actually not understanding wine as a whole making the assumption that all wine is bad and has stuff added to it and therefore I'm going to make a wine which doesn't have anything added to it and one thing that really came to mind for me when I first heard that term was actually again like I touched on before a lot of the great wines of the world could class themselves as as clean wine because they don't have anything added that they don't need to but they they don't call themselves that because they're about good wine first and not good marketing first. Yeah, and it was good marketing, actually. It, it was. certainly got us uh, talking and got uh, plenty of attention. So uh, Cameron, if she doesn't know a thing or two about winemaking, then she certainly does about uh, marketing. But uh, that's really <laughs> fascinating. Uh, Freddie, thank you very much indeed. Uh, hopefully we've made um, some sense of what is quite a complicated area. Um, it's always a pleasure chatting to you. Thank you for joining us on The Drinking Hour. Thanks for having me, David. I'll speak to you soon. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now it's time for our first trio of IWSC medal-winning wines and spirits. First, a medal winner from the new band of English sparklers taking us by storm at the moment. This one's from Kent. Balfour Hush Heath Blanc de Blanc 2014 won a bronze medal with the judges saying elegant exotic fruit character on the nose with yellow and green apple on the palate soft structure with a savoury finish. Balfour have pioneered more than just English sparkling wine they've also made English wine tourism sparkle too so do check out the Kent winery where that 2014 Blanc de Blanc is available for £40. Next, it's to Moldova, an emerging wine region on the international stage that's garnering plenty of attention at the moment. A high silver here, 94 points, one shy of a gold for Percari Viorica 2019. The judges praising its interesting nose with some spices and floral aromas. The palate is crisp and fresh with notes of orange blossom, stone fruits and green tea. Vibrant and precise, they said. It's available at novelwines.co.uk for £16.49. And a red wine from a Greek variety I absolutely love, Zinamavro. Alpha Estate Ecosystem Reserve, Veilvine, single block Barber Yanis Zinamavro 2016. That's uh, more than a mouthful uh, than the wine, I suspect, was a silver medal winner. The judges describing succulent aromatics on the nose of red fruit, rose petals and blackcurrant. On the palate, spiced notes of pepper and delicate black olive. Tightly structured, well integrated, super fine tannins. That is £20.80 at vinum.co.uk. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Now it's time to transport you to our desert island. Each episode of The Drinking Hour, we invite a leading drinks professional to share with us their passion for a particular drink or a place associated with it. It's our desert island drink. 
It can be a grape variety, a particular wine, a spirit. It can even be a whole region, which is probably a good idea in terms of breadth of supply on your uh, desert island. And that's exactly what our next guest has decided to do. Giles Burke Gaffney is buying director at Justeridi and Brooks. And hello, Giles. Welcome. You've decided to bring a whole region yourself, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah, well, oh, thank you. Good morning. And um, it's, it's great to, to be here. Um, I've plumped for an entire region, um, which may be a bit of a cop out, but, um, uh, you know, you're on a desert island and uh, you're, you're going to need plenty of wine. And um, I've chosen Burgundy as, as my region. And you will have plenty of wine and you'll have plenty of, of very, very good wine. Um, you're, um, I suppose we should ask you first why you've chosen Burgundy. Well, I think simply I never get bored of drinking the wines, which I think is probably a key requirement on if you're marooned. On, a, on an island. So yeah, I think the wines are um, so fabulously easy to drink and um, they have this quality, good burgundy has this quality that the French would call digest. So sort of it makes your mouth water and um, you, you, it's very Moorish, you want more and it goes very well with food, assuming there's a, a nice supply of food on the island too. But um, yeah, so for, for its uh, drinkability, I would say it's interest uh, and also the diversity of, of Burgundy, you know, from up the north in Chablis all the way down to Beaujolais, you've got a, a, a plethora of kind of styles and um, varieties and, and terroirs that can can keep you interested for, for a long, long time. I think we'd have to guarantee a supply of good food if you'd taken the trouble <laughs> to bring the whole of Burgundy, to, to be honest. Um, you need um, quite a budget for, for Burgundy, don't you, really? You do. Uh, it is sort of notoriously, shall we say, expensive and, and even more so the last few years where, you know, market prices of the sort of really sought after blue chip wines have, have gone through the roof. Having said that, uh, there is um, a lot of interest in some of the lesser known areas now. And you can actually pick up some, these things are relative, of course, but you can pick up some relative bargains if, if you hunt in the in some of the sort of lesser known Appalachians, lesser known villages, such as sort of Marange and Panavajles, places like that. Um, so you can find value, you can get a, get some very, very good wines uh, without remortgaging. Um, so yeah, it, you, you shouldn't ever scrimp on Burgundy. I think that's rule number one. But uh, uh, you know, you, you can't expect um, cheap Burgundy to taste as good as um, perhaps a, uh, a New World or Southern French. Um, uh, version but um, yeah it's uh, it's a special area. So where do you look then you mentioned a couple of names there but um, if you want value for money still in Burgundy uh, and, and I appreciate that um, value is relative here but um, where should you be going to uh, get a Burgundy that you know, is let's say a 20 quid a bottle? So I would look at um, there are two ways of doing this so you can you can look at the the generic wine from some of the, the top estates, uh, so like the, the Bourgogne level wine, um, and there's plenty of value to be had there. If you if you know your names and you, you follow your producers, then that's a great place to start. Um, but I'd, I'd otherwise seriously recommend going into some of the, the villages um, like Marange, Panavajoles, Saint-Aubin, even into the Côte Chalonnais in, um, in Rui, for example. You know, there's some wonderful wines. They don't have the glamour and glitz of the top names of Burgundy. But, you know, you've got some artisan growers in some of these villages. 
making single vineyard wines um, that speak of a place that have an identity, that have a bit of interest, and because they're not popular, you know, uh, they are they're, they're relatively inexpensive. You know, twenty, thirty quid a bottle, you know, which you know in Burgundy terms isn't isn't too bad, um, and you get a lot of interest for that. You get a lot of complexity in the wine. Um, rather than just something too kind of neutral or generic that tastes varietal, you actually get what is so wonderful about Burgundy, which is this idea of terroir, this, this complexity. You've been a buying director uh, at Just Arrhenius for, I think, uh, in excess of 20 years. So you've seen um, what I'm about to describe happening. Um, I was going back through my um, en primeur um, leaflets, um, actually in this case from the Wine Society. Uh, for those who don't know, en primeur, where you buy wine uh, prior to its release so it helps the producers with cash flow I, I think it's it, it, the ba most basic way of talking about that but I was looking at these leaflets um, that came uh, maybe 20 years ago because I was trying to tally them with what I had in my cellar and it's astonishing to see how burgundy prices have risen um, how did that happen what what is driven that I mean you almost first things first uh, you almost don't want to look and I've got a few in my cellar from from when I first joined JNB and I, I I, I don't really want to even see what the market values are. I, I just want to, I don't want to be tempted into selling them. I, w I want to drink them. But um, yes, you know, the wines have gone up hugely. Not long before, as I joined back in 97 and, and not long before then, you know, the top wines of the most sought after producers weren't so easy to sell. Uh, Burgundy wasn't so popular, but it's just years of gathering momentum, years of, you know, the quality of production improving, uh, new generations taking um, estates on and uh, taking them on from their their parents and, and improving quality. I'm I'm sure there's an element of global warming going on there, but I, I think it's by and large just the developments in viticulture, uh, particularly, have really improved quality. If you add that to you know a growing demand as people try the wines and like them, uh, and then you add that to you know the negative um, effects that global warming is having in terms of extremes of weather which means lower production. So really from 2010, they've mostly been really small vintages. Um, you know, 2018 is perhaps an exception. Um, but if you add that into the, the growing demand, you have this, this, this supply demand equation um, and these rocketing prices are the result. Yeah, I mean, it's classic economics, I, I suppose. Uh, so it's famous uh, for being relatively small, certainly compared to Bordeaux as a region, isn't it? It, it is. So, you know, um, you, you can, in some cases, they might make one barrel of, of one of their wines. You know, you almost never um, fail to consider myself sort of very lucky, privileged. Um, uh, and sometimes it's almost sort of guilty feeling you're in a cellar and uh, the producer dips their pipette into, into their one barrel or even half mini barrel of wine. And you think, gosh, that's 200 and whatever it is, 80 odd bottles for the entire world. And I, I'm about to get a half a, half a pipette full of it. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's micro. It is micro. micro. I remember I was uh, on a press trip um, early on in my life as a wine journalist um, in uh, Burgundy and we had one of those uh, barrel samples and I was there on the press trip with a, a veteran uh, journalist who'd done this many times before and I was used to tasting uh, the sample 
um, uh, from the glass and then throwing away the contents of the glass. And so I Ooh. did this and she looked at me as with a look of death and said, you don't do that. You put it back in the barrel. Those terroirs um, are so uh, celebrated, the clima, those the very small parcels of land. And it's really hard to imagine the difference one strip can make to another strip. But it does, doesn't it? It, it, it does. You know, you only have to be in someone's cellar and try 10 different wines, you know, they're all from different vineyards that I probably know more than, you know, a few hundred meters um, from each other. And you can very, very clearly see they're made in the same way. And yet you can very, very clearly see big differences between them. And that's, that's part of the interest of Burgundy. That's the, it's complex, you need to get to know it, but um, it's why people love it, because there's so much interest there, so much to learn. Um, it, it's fantastic. And, it, you know, it all depends on you know, it could be the soil makeup of the vineyard. It could be different from one vineyard to the next. You know, the neighbouring vineyard could have more clay in it um, or more limestone. It's where it is on the hill. It's uh, perhaps it's positioned at the mouth of a valley. So there's a cool wind. Um, there are lots of factors that can, can affect the different um, styles of wine that come out of these climates. And because of the nature of those clima, uh, the labels can be to an outsider, at least, or someone who is intimidated by looking at a, a shelf of wines can be quite intimidating. Obviously, the answer is to go to a good merchant uh, like you who can who can guide them. But um, how do you navigate those labels if you don't know Burgundy inside out? Uh, it's a very good question. Uh, and it, I would say as much as it's my desert island region, um, you can also come across her in Burgundy quite quite badly. You know, it, you can end up making some expensive mistakes. Um, you, you do have to know what you're doing. Don't um, don't jump in with with both feet without you know taking advice. Um, and be it from your your trustworthy merchant or not. You know, look at journalist reviews. Um, get to know the area a bit. Look look out for names of producers. That would be my first kind of uh, tip. You know, people may have heard of a, a particular village, you know, um, Merso or Chevy-Chomotel or something like that. But don't fall into the trap of saying, well, actually, I, I had a, a Merso or a Chevy-Chomotel. Oh, look, let's go and try that one. I, I wouldn't pay too much attention to the to the, the village or the Appellation, really. It, it might it, it will indicate a rough kind of style because each of these villages have their own style. But really, it's the producer, it's the winemaker. And you want to get to know who the good ones are or the ones that, you know, you, you are attuned to your tastes and follow those. Um, you know, I'd much rather have a, a Bourgogne, an entry level wine from a producer I love than a Premier Cru wine from a, you know, a producer I don't consider to be very good. So that, that would be my tip would be to really look for the producer. If, if you're on the hop and if you're not, you know, it does require investment in, uh, of time. Uh, it's a complicated area, but it's worth it. But if you haven't got the time and if you're on the hop, you're in the supermarket, then you go by vintage. So you, you good producers should be making great wine every vintage, but or very good wine every vintage. But if um, if you're just looking to pick up something, um, yeah, you, you look at the vintage. 2015 for reds is a particularly good one. 2017 for whites also. You can't go too far wrong. If you didn't make good wine in those vintages, then um, you, may, you kind of may as well give up. 
So that would be my tip. Look for the producer name, if not the vintage. And when we think of uh, those wonderful uh, burgundy whites, um, I'm certainly tending to think of Chardonnay, although, of course, you wouldn't see it on the label. But um, what's your view on the other white grape that I tend to think of uh, possibly unfairly as a bit of a Cinderella grape? Uh, the grape <laughs> is Aligoté. What What do you think of Aligoté? I, I love Aligoté, actually. I, I probably... I have to admit, I probably don't drink enough of them. Um, they, 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 they can give you some tremendous experiences. Pe- people are, are kind of rather dismissive of it. And and that's because you know it can produce very kind of acidic, insipid green wine. Um, now, I don't know whether that's... It, it was always the wine that you'd sort of match with Cassis and, and make a cure with, uh, or you'd find as, as a cure in um, you know, sort of local village taverns in in burgundy but um so and it often planted in unsuitable areas so it was only ever going to be it wasn't given much of a chance i suppose um but suddenly when you put it on a slope or you lower production you treat it like you treat your other vines it can produce some really great results there's some great ones in panel Vergeles. you can find some good merceau producers who make aligoté above all where it's at its sort of greatest is um in the village of Bouzeron where it has its own appellation. Um, there, it's a particular kind of variety of aligoté called aligoté doré, which is sort of lower yielding and um, uh, achieves ripeness better and has more sort of intensity of flavour. Um, different to Chardonnay, um, but, but you know, I don't think any, any necessarily any less good and surprisingly can age. I was bowled over to be given uh, what I thought was a sort of some kind of Riesling white burgundy hybrid um, not too long ago. And, and to find out it was a 1976 Aligoté, which had wow. um, aged remarkably well. It was surprising. It wasn't profound, but it hadn't budged too much. You know, it wasn't, um, it was nice to drink and it, it wasn't overly mature. Yeah, well, I, I, I would concur on that press trip that I mentioned where I um, made my faux pas with the uh, the, the, the posh sample. Um, actually, we did have some fantastic Aligoté. So I, I think you're right. And I, I have subsequently bought it my, myself and sort of added it to my own collection of wines. What about Beaujolais? Because I, I tend to think of Beaujolais, I love Beaujolais, but I tend to think of Beaujolais as a region in its own right. But it is technically Burgundy as well, isn't it? It is technically Burgundy. Um... And I, I, I tend to, I tend to agree with you. I, I love the wines. Um, I get a lot of pleasure from Beaujolais, but I have to admit I don't think of it as Burgundy either, um, whether it's dead or not. But it's you know the the terroir, the soils are very different. You know a lot of granites there, um, which you don't get in 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 the rest of Burgundy. Certainly not in the Cote d'Or or Cote Chalonnaise. And uh, obviously Gamay is the grape variety, um, which you don't really see a lot of in in the rest of Burgundy. So two two very good reasons why the, the wines are different. They can give you a, a similar, you know, if you're feeling outpriced by Burgundy, it, it, you know, isn't a bad idea to go and look in Beaujolais because there's some tremendous, you know, artisan growth doing wonderful things in villages like moulin Avon and Morgan, Bruy. But um, yeah, the wines are different. With age, they, they can, particularly the moulin Avons and things, they can age very well. Um, and there could be some kind of convergence as they age in style with sort of Red Burgundy, I suppose, Pinot Noir. But yeah, to me, they're different things. Um, but a lot of interest there. So well worth exploring and good value yeah. too. Oh, yeah, great value, certainly compared to, to, to Burgundy a little bit further north. And 
And this is what's so brilliant about your choice of desert island drink, because you can also slip Be uh, Beaujolais in there as well uh, with Burgundy on the well, technicality, exactly. which is a, a great idea. Um, there's a move afoot I noticed recently in the communications I've been receiving um, from the uh, the trade body in, in Burgundy um, to style it as Bourgogne in all of their communications. They have previously translated it when they're talking to English speakers as Burgundy. What's that all about? Um, it, good, good question. Uh, it's, I mean, to me, as a, as a sort of non-French person, it, to me, Bourgogne defines a, a, it's a very sort of technical, almost legal term. It's a, it's an Appalachian contrôlé to me. You know, it's, it's not just a region. It's a, it's a quality level. So, Bourgogne is made from a defined area with defined yields. Um, and of course, it's interchangeable in French with the region that is Burgundy. But um, I, I guess they're trying to. I mean, they're, they're, they're very keen on on identity in France, aren't they? And and perhaps Burgundy is, is sounds a bit too catch-all. I don't know. I don't know what the reasoning is behind it. But um, personally, you know, I, I feel like Bourgogne is l'appellation, um, and Burgundy for me is is the um, is the region. But uh, mm. I guess they're just trying to you know, go back to the roots. They're proud of their system. Um, they're proud of their identity. Um, you know, I, who knows? Maybe it's a, a wider move um, in France of not wanting to sort of anglicise everything. There's, a, there's, I think, a bit of a, a movement in France generally to, to, um, yes. to avoid, I think, there are radio stations that, um, you know, refuse to include words that are anglicised versions of French words. So I, I personally prefer Bourg uh, Bourgogne for the Appalachian and Burgundy for the for the region, but then I'm English. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Time to show off then. Uh, what's the best Burgundy you've ever tasted? And as I say, you are allowed to show off, so it can be pricey. Oh, okay. Um, that's that's tricky. There are a number. As I said before, I'm, I've been incredibly um, lucky and spoiled in my, my job to taste uh, some of these wines. Um, hard to choose one. There are a, a number that spring to mind. Um, you think legendary wines that, you know, our, our legendary most vintages, you know, things like Moussini from Etienne Grivo's Richebourg, of course, there's DRC, which I haven't been lucky enough to try in barrel, but I did in, in bottle, one of the, um, the the things that got me into wine, actually, um, luckily enough. But um, I think over and above all of those, my most sort of memorable experiences have been with um, La Romane, with from Ligia Belair, Domaine du Comte Ligia Belair. You know, top Burgundy is something that should... You can't, it's elusive. You can't pinpoint sort of exactly what it is that you love about it always. It's something that is sort of magical, you know, mysterious, uh, that it didn't give you everything straight away. Uh, it sort of drip feeds you and then it sort of somehow, and Laurent displays these qualities particularly, which is why I love it, is it kind of accelerates across your palate. So it's a slow start, it builds. And then as you think you're getting to the end, it accelerates and gives you more. And then even then you're sitting uh, down with your empty glass, having very far too quickly finished it, finished it, and and you're still left with it, haunting your kind of mouth, and uh, you know the empty glass still smells of the wine. It stays with you. So I I, I would have to plump for La Romane from Comte Ligabella. Well, you've certainly sold that one to anyone listening. I think that sounds absolutely fantastic. A very evocative description too. Uh, Giles, uh, it's fantastic talking to you about uh, Burgundy uh, 
benefiting from your knowledge and experience as well. Thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you, David. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Our next trio of recommendations from the IWSC Hall of Fame kicks off with a gold medal winning gin that's quintessentially English. City of London distillery Square Mile Gin is distilled in the capital with the bottle inspired by the shape of the dome of St Paul's Cathedral. The judges said distinctive nose opening well on dilution, slight sweet notes on the front of the palate, juniper and warm spices, cinnamon and ginseng linger on a long dry finish. That's £30 at the distillery, cityoflondondistillery.com. To Italy next and the province of Campania. Tre Fiori Greco di Tufo DOCG 2019 won a silver medal with 91 points. The judges praising its lovely, delicate start on the nose with lime blossom and lemon peel. It has a ripe and round side to it with crisp freshness and a mineral, deep and refreshing edge. It's a great representation of this variety and origin. And that one is just 10.99 at Waitrose. And to Bordeaux for a gold medal winner. I was actually on the judging panel for this one and we gave it 96 points. Chateau Beauvillage Medoc 2018. We described a wonderfully complex aromatic profile full of ripe cherry and plum, cedar spice, rich mocha and a hint of smoke. The fine silky tannin structure skillfully frames well-polished fruit and carries a concentrated lingering finish. That's just $16.99 at thegeneralwinecompany.co.uk, demonstrating what incredible value you can still get from Bordeaux, for a gold medal winner especially, uh, despite all those assumptions about Bordeaux being pricey. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Turkey is famously where East meets West, part Europe, part Asia, where continents come together and cultures collide. Less famously, it's also one of the biggest grape growers in the world, though most of those are destined for your fruit bowl or muesli. Wine from Turkey is still a relatively rare treat in the UK at least, but it is well worth discovering, especially if you're armed with a little knowledge beforehand. Isabel is a master sommelier, the first and indeed still the only one from Turkey. And he's been in charge of the wine list at Heston Blumenthal's Fat Duck, awarded the title Best Sommelier in Europe and has co-founded the restaurant Trivet in Bermondsey in London. And he joins us now. Hello, Isa. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Um, My pleasure. I think we should start by talking about where you discovered your love of wine uh, you you grew up in turkey that's right isn't it that's right i think i came i came to uk after uh, my university studies um and then um to further study and and it is in uk i actually got interested in learning about wine i i drank wine before coming to uk but uh, it, it was more for the effect of it than the intellect part of it if you like right and and how did you get into wine then um and and, and what did you discover in london well um in london when i came to london first 
um, I was taking some wine courses because some of my other friends were taking it and it sounded interesting. And I started to take some courses at the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. And But I didn't think of working in wine sort of as a professional capacity, if you like, at that point. It wasn't until I went uh, once to a vineyard at Stockcross and saw what those guys are doing there, the sommeliers, etc., and got quite interested in what they are doing, particularly in the sommelier part of it. Um, and it was done in such a good way that I felt um, oh, something looks very interesting. I would like to get involved in it. And then I, I, I basically applied for a position uh, of a commissomelier there. And then after sort of bombarding the food and beverage manager, Eduardo Amadi, then uh, with messages, phone calls, visits, he agreed to give me a go. And that the rest is basically history. Wow. <laughs> That's incredible, really. And then yeah. um, you become uh, a master sommelier, which is no small undertaking because you need an encyclopedic knowledge of wines and wine lists to be able to do that. Um, and, and then you go on to be the uh, best sommelier in, in Europe. As you say, the rest is is, is history. Um, what made you want to be an MS, by the way? Um, I think there are, there are several different reasons for that. Um, one of the reasons is that, you know, when you are involved in whatever field, in professional manner, you always need sort of um, anchors, if you like, to keep you in a sort of line to, to keep working to get better. And the, the Master Sommelier qualification and the Master of Wine qualification, those two qualifications look like they are the ultimate qualification you could get in the wine field. And I had to, I was at the crossroads, if you like, I had to make a decision whether to seek the Master of Wine route or the Master Sommelier route. But I thought and I felt with what I am doing, the Master Sommelier uh, qualification looked more relevant to me than the Master of Wine qualification, which they are both very sort of respectable and difficult qualification to obtain. Mm. Mm. So I, I decided to pursue the Master Sommelier qualification, but also I was well aware that there was no one else from Turkey who has ever done it, and I knew that that would also put me in a good standing professionally, um, both in Turkey and internationally. That was another reason. But also, there is a part that is also a legacy. You know, it's you, you achieve something that no one else has achieved uh, from a massive country. And I think that was also a sort of incentive for me to pursue that with, with more gusto, if you like. Turkey has... Uh a rich history of winemaking, doesn't it? That's right. I think, I think as a geography, uh, if, we, if we just leave Turkey one side and just look at it as a geography, the reason I say that is I think we are looking at a geography that encompasses Turkey, uh, Caucasian countries like Armenia, Georgia, modern day north of Iran. It's somewhere along here the winemaking first started in the history. And also, 
Um, in these areas, even today, in the uplands, uh, you could find some wild Vitis vinifera growing. And they are the sort of ancestors of what we know of today as Chardonnay or Cabernet Sauvignon or Sauvignon Blanc. Those are the grapes that most Vitis vinifera has originated. So yes, this, we are talking 7000 BC, huge amount of history there and heritage as well. And tell us about the indigenous varieties there, the most notable that we might want to um, look out for and, and, and where they will, will come from. I think, I think in Turkey, you have got at the moment about 1,300 named varieties and of which about 80 of them are commercially uh, used in the winemaking. You can then uh, reduce that number to about 10 as the most prominent and important varieties. The main one for the reds uh, are Öküzgözü and Boazkere. These two are the sort of Sangiovese and Nebbiolo of Italy, if you like. Um, they are they are really high-quality grape varieties with unique characters of their own. And then you have got some other local varieties like Papaskarase, which translates as the black grape of the priest, and which, is, which gives you lighter, fruitier wines. And then you have Kalejikkarase, which comes from around the capital city, Ankara, uh, gives you Grenache, Stroke, Pinot-like uh, fruitiness with soft tannins and sort of very uh, gentle red fruit structure. These would be the main red varieties that one might encounter at the moment. And then for the whites, uh, three grapes are quite important. One is called Naringe, uh, which means delicately. And it's a, it's a great variety, I think, that produces amazing structure and aromatic uh, complexity in that you find stone fruits, floral notes, almost like very subtle Viognier nose, but with much better acidity and mineral structure. And then Emir, which comes from around Cappadocia in central Turkey, in the high plateau around the Terion, volcanic soils, generally chalky uh, soils as well, uh, that produces very sort of steely, high acid, uh, almost like a Chablis-esque character to it on the palate. And then you have the Bornova Mischetti, which is actually the Muscat of Alexandria, which we know from Pilini times that there are references to this great variety around there and the quality of it as well. So it's a very ubiquitous variety in Turkey and they are doing very little with the Muscat varieties, but they are actually starting to understand that it's it's got an important place there as well. So I would, I would sort of highlight these varieties as the ones that are most prominent at the moment in Turkey. I've had some very successful international varieties. So when obviously when we, we say international varieties, the likes of um, Cabernet or, or Merlot um, from uh, Turkey, is um, the arrival of, of uh, international grape varieties a, a good thing? for um, Turkey, do you think? Or would you prefer the focus to be on those indigenous varieties you described? I think we need to look at the modern history of Turkey with regards to international varieties uh, first. 
And after the establishment of the Republic, end of Ottoman era and establishing of the Republic, there were, there were many foreign experts brought in by the state to increase the knowledge amongst Turkish people producing wine and practices and things like that that were more in line with the, those times. And with them came the international varieties started to come to Turkey. We are talking in 1924, 1925, around this area and later, in, well into 1950s and uh, 50s. So they kept working with foreign enologists and viticulturalists and things like that. So most of the international varieties found their way into Turkey. On the first wave came the varieties like Grenache, uh, Sensal, Carignan, Alicante, Boucher, things like that. And at later stages, Syrah, Cabernet, Cabernet Franc, and Chardonnay, Sauvignon Blanc started to make their way. Interestingly, one of the first grape, uh, foreign grape varieties, a white one, was Riesling in Turkey to be planted. And Riesling um, slowly declined, and I think there are still some Riesling plantings in Turkey, but very negligible amount. And I think if you look at the wine drinking demographic in Turkey, mostly they are well-educated, well-traveled people who has discovered the wine outside Turkey and got to know those great varieties. So the producer felt with the influence of those experts they work with, they, that's what they needed to do. Mm. But I see, I see one big problem there because you are a country with massive amount of grape varieties and in favor of the foreign grape varieties to start and to work with those, you are almost sort of, yes, satisfying a small market in Turkey, but you are actually uh, sort of stopping the rest of the world to discover uh, what treasures you have. Mm. And I think I'm, I'm pleased to say they are taking more of an important role at the moment, even though the international grape varieties are still very important for many producers. There are some they do particularly good. For example, Syrah adapts very well to Turkey. Cabernet Franc, I think Turkey has one of the best terroirs in the world, uh, along with Loire and a few others uh, for this grape variety. Wow. There, there are some mixed bag of Cabernet Sauvignons, um, but also the most of the producers in Turkey, they understand the international grape varieties better than they do with local varieties. The local varieties, they still need to be explored in terms of clonal differences, viticultural practices, vinification practices. That will come in time. Nothing happens quickly in the wine industry when it comes to switching focus from set of grape varieties to something else. But that will definitely come. I'm quite optimistic. I actually have a small project with two other friends in Turkey where we discover sort of lost or forgotten indigenous varieties and make small batch of wine from those. We have done one this year. Uh, one grape variety, but three different renderings of it, if you like. Little fun projects like that keeps happening, which is encouraging. 
And of course, when you go on holiday somewhere and you have a delicious wine, you, you then want it when you get home. So where can we find um, these wines? Where can we buy them and, and what should we you know, look out for? I think you can probably find sort of scattering of uh, Turkish wine in some of the small indie shops. But without sounding advertising my own business here, mm -hmm. um, we probably have the most comprehensive Turkish wine offering uh, via our website uh, at the Trivet restaurant. Yeah, well, I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, a visit to Trivet anyway. It's great that uh, you're uh, back in business. And uh, Isa, thanks very much indeed for joining us on The Drinking Hour. My, my absolute pleasure. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition. Using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. There's just time for our final three medal winners from the IWSC Hall of Fame. Here's a fabulous ferment from Slovenia, from Puklavec Family Wines, Seven Numbers Ferment 2019, won a silver medal. The judges praised its lovely fruit character on the nose with a hint of smoke and floral notes. On the palate, ripe apple with a good amount of weight and freshness. And that is £16.75 at the whiskeyexchange.com. A classic from Spain next, Faustino Gran Reserva Rioja 2009, won a high silver, 93 points, described by the judges this way. Seductively ripe damsons and complex notes of vanilla, chocolate and tobacco. Mouth-watering with firm tannins and lovely texture. Flavours extend into a long finish. This was aged for 28 months in a mix of French and American oak, and that is £25.95 at masterofmalt.com. And here's a gorgeous rum to finish off. Spirit of Haiti, Clarin Communal White Rum from Haiti won a gold medal, with the judges describing it as a joyful explosion for the senses, generous offerings of ripe pineapple, banana and creme brulee partner well with classic green earthy elements. The nose is inviting and the palate rewarding with intense integrated flavours and a rich mouthfeel. And that is £37.20 at masterofmalt.com. And that's it for The Drinking Hour here on Food FM for this week's episode. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks to my guests this week as well. If you'd like to stay in touch, then you can follow Food FM Radio on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow me too. I'm Mr. Venusaurus on Instagram and Twitter. Or you can email us at thedrinkinghour at foodfmradio.com. But for now, it's goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.